Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is Michael Shapiro with my special guest, Carlos Calmar, conductor extraordinaire, speaking to me from where are you today? I'm in Shaker Heights. Many guys in Cleveland. That's okay. I know Cleveland very, very well. Old friends with Franklin Cohen, who is living not so far from you. I know, I know Frank is one of my faculty colleagues. That's correct, which we'll talk about at Cleveland Institute of Music. But I want to talk about Carlos Calmar, the conductor and musician who has been around for quite a long time, uh, whose work is throughout all the major orchestras in Europe and here, and also your wonderful work with the Oregon Symphony over many decades, and now also at Cleveland, but also... Grant Park and that summer series you've been holding in Chicago for so many years. But let's step back. You've been an active con professional conductor for decades. You're almost a contemporary of me, <laughs> a bit older. But tell me the difference now. I mean, you are start going to be teaching at Cleveland Institute, which is a new thing for you, I think. You've, you've taught before, but never in such a concentrated way. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I would say the difference is apparent within probably six, six uh, uh, weeks, uh, 10 weeks of, uh, of experience with the students. You know, I have a very, very long experience, just what I call building orchestras, meaning to, uh, finding an orchestra wherever I find the orchestra and just taking it to a different level by constantly working and constantly kind of refining what is there, uh, building on their strengths, et cetera, et cetera. And now I am in an environment where I technically want to do the same, but I am very aware that a certain number of students who are right now with me and have been working with me for the last five months, are not going to be there next years, and they are going to be replaced by freshmen uh, and all the newcomers who have never worked with me. So it's this process of building doesn't really exist. It's also the one of the biggest differences, which of course comes, I would say, with uh, it's the only time I mentioned the word age is that when you work with professional orchestras, you can rely on their experience, no matter what, and where in their career they are, meaning they know the A, B, and C of orchestra playing. Whereas when you are in an environment where you are teaching and you're working with students, um, there might be uh, students there whose um, experience as orchestra players is very, very limited, and they don't really know what to look for in an orchestra. Uh, and uh, that is one of the parts where I'm teaching them, aside from, it, of course, exposing them to any repertoire and any style that I can even think of so that they become complete musicians. But it's different. Now, let's go to specifics, if I may, because there'll be students watching this. I talk from my own experience, and then I want to learn about yours. I study conducting with two people. Now, I'm a composer who conducts, not a conductor who composes, but I studied with two people uh, conducting. I studied with Karl Baumbecker, that shows my age, the great Austrian conductor, and teacher at Manus for over 40 years, a musician, great musician about musical qualities, but not a technician. Then I studied much later 
with Harold Farberman at Bard, who was strictly a technician, strictly how to hold the baton, how to hold the arm, how not to have a lot of motions, (laughs) moving your head, moving your ears, you know. What's going to be your approach at CIM, or is your approach? Um, so, and, and your background, and your background, I'd be curious. So, in in I studied with uh, two teachers in Vienna and Austria, and I actually went from one to the other. Um, so, I started with Karl Randolph at the Conservatory of Music. Mm-hmm. Oh, for man, I would say he was a little bit of the older wise man. Because uh, at that time, I had no experience. I had never had uh, proper training. I had conducted, but no proper training. And he could have beaten me up without even blinking. Of, <laughs> I made a lot of musical mistakes, and have, which you have when you're very young, a lot of very crazy ideas. But he pretty much let me be and kind of uh, he let me grow in one direction and uh, kind of shaped off the branches that went too crazy to the side. And later I studied with Karl Österreicher, which was, uh, Karl Österreicher was the successor of the great Hans Swarovski. Yes, of course. Karl Österreicher was the more technical uh, side of things, not only, but mostly that is what I took. And I always joked, that um, the, that of course not all his students made it to be conductors. Mm-hmm. Some just veered off and did something completely different. It's just uh, it's nobody's fault. Is how it goes. However, I can say that all of us could conduct. All of us, uh, meaning technically, just keeping an orchestra together and just sh- showing certain things uh, they were all good. And Karl Österreicher was, of course, uh, very, very healthy for me because that is where I learned um, uh, kind of the technical side of conducting. Ah, now let's talk about, you're a pianist originally? Oh, uh, hell no. (laughs) Hell no. So what is your instrument? No, it's one of my very many weaknesses is I'm a violinist. Well, it's not a weakness. You know how to deal with strings, which many pianists don't know. Yeah, I always say that one of my biggest advantages was um, in terms of, and I still cherish it now, 37 years later, I cherish the fact that I sat in an orchestra for quite a while uh, as a substitute in Vienna. I have quite an experience playing the violin in an orchestra. Wow. Other part that I cherish very, very much is during my student times in Vienna, I was also the choir director for two choruses, amateur choruses. Excellent, excellent. Wonderful training. Training about breath. Not only that, but training of shape. When you actually conduct and you have to work with people who are not musicians and mm-hmm. to adjust your vocabulary and get the best out of them right try to be motivational etc it's it's an important step because you i i don't recall that it was that way but i would always say you come off your high horse and you mm-hmm. the reality and the reality was wonderful i still remember to this day that just at the very end of my what you call tenure as choir director, mm. 
did in both cases, I unified them and I did the E flat uh, major mass by Franz Schubert, which is a work that uh, here in the United States, not many people know mm -mm. they should. Well, the masses are amazing. The masses are incredible and E flat major is just, it's beyond belief. It's the quality of the unfinished. You know, Bomberg and my teacher told me as a kid, his nanny used to, who was Catholic, used to take the little Jewish uh, Austrian boy to the Hofburg uh, Capella, I think it was, on yes. the weekends, on Sundays, to hear Schubert and Mozart and Haydn masses performed by the Vienna Choir Boys and the Vienna Philharmonic. <laughs> Those were the days, right? <laughs> yeah, essentially, that was the, the way to get people to attend mass. You just tell them the music is going to be good. Because That's right. People were like, I'm not into religion, but you said, hey, come on. Ronation you know, mass by Mozart, pretty good. I'll go, I'll go. Who's conducting? Yeah. Um, you have interesting background. Now, your folks fled Europe, in yes. the, I assume, because of the Holocaust. Yes, they did. And they settled in South America. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is a story I very much know about in my, my background as well, and from Bombegger especially. And did they speak German in the household or was it Spanish? Uh, they spoke both. Uh, so I grew up with two languages from the get-go. Um, the interesting thing about the language is that, of course, I was born in Uruguay, which was for my parents the second country they went because they ended up fleeing uh, the Holocaust. They ended up in Bolivia, where mm. they met. At the time, we are talking 1938. That's was 10. So my mother completed um, school, high school in Bolivia. And that is mm. why my mother spoke without any accent, Spanish. Mm. Because she went to school there and she had a great, she had an interesting year for that. For music, no ear, but different story. <laughs> and my dad, who was 10 years her senior, uh, always spoke with an accent. And at home, we spoke everything. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. But they, but they were an Austrian family originally? Uh, yeah, my, my parents were from Vienna in Austria, and they, uh, they escaped right after, I mean, they didn't know each other at that time. They escaped uh, after Reichskristallnacht. Oh, yeah. Left the country. Oh, boy. In any event, your musical studies in Uruguay were where? I studied privately. My parents noticed, uh, they always were interested in taking uh, their boys, my brother and myself, um, to concerts. And they noticed that I have kind of a certain interest uh, for them. I would say. Whether I want to study an instrument, I, and I, that I remember this. When they asked me, and I only could name really specifically two instruments. Uh, for whatever reason, I didn't. I didn't connect to things like it's a cello or it's a flute. I knew it's a violin, it's a piano. So pick one. I picked the violin, and I studied privately. Privately. Yes. Good enough to to be a sub player in Vienna later. What got you to Vienna? Well, what 
essentially got us to Vienna was that uh, I would say the, the main reason was that my brother and I were poised to study something that you cannot study in Uruguay. My brother had this idea of uh, becoming a teacher um, uh, of a certain kind, and I wanted to become a musician, mm. but we would have to travel to Europe. And my parents simply didn't like the idea of splitting the family because they thought, rightly so, that if we, their boys go, they, uh, they are going to see their boys once a year and that's it. And Especially they that distance, yeah. Yeah, and they didn't want to do that. And so they they took the risk. I still admire that fact that voluntarily they moved the entire family, us four, uh, to Europe and succeeded and settled in Vienna, of all places, oh. and lived uh, there, I would say, happily ever after. What year was that, do you know? That was 1973. We could have met because I was in Vienna in 74. Ah! A lot of stories to, to talk, talk about. In the, uh, well, a lot of stories. I remember the Bitsek I lived, lived in and so forth. In Bitsek, in any event, getting back to conducting, which I find fascinating talking to you with your experience. Now you're going to teach the practical life you have led, will continue to leave, the lead, I should say, going forward. Um, what repertoire will you focus on with your students? Do you know? I will focus on any repertoire that allows the the students uh, to grow, and I will try <laughs> to. I mean, you have to understand that my conducting students, where I'm aiming at, are not the beginners. So I essentially I don't teach the A, B, and C. Um, what I want to do is uh, to teach them how to use and rely their technical abilities mm. in an environment of professional musicianship so that they uh, can act have the aptitude of working with their hands and their expression um, in such a way that they don't have to constantly interrupt the orchestra and the flow mm. of Rehearsal, which is very interesting. And I also would love uh, to, over time, teach them what I call rehearsal technique, because I remember myself uh, very, very vividly that uh, in my very last week as a student, mm. in, uh, I also participated in the Hans Zorowski International Competition. And I remember that I got to the finals and I had um, a rehearsal with the radio orchestra and I did Beethoven 4. And I did my rehearsal and then I sent everybody for coffee, meaning let's have a break. And I was pacing there in the hallway of the Vienna Concert House and uh, Maestro Ludovic Reiter, um, who was for years the chief conductor of Slovakian uh, Philharmonic, and who at that time was, I think, already eight years. He stopped me there, very fine, kind man, I remember him vividly, and said, Kalmar, listen, you are very talented, but you have to stop talking. Ah. And I thought, of course, I was shocked. <laughs> but uh, over the years, I, I remember this very well, and I thought, great advice, because 
most of the time, we young conductors, uh, we talk way too much. Well, that's the famous thing that Beecham says in his interview, which you've probably seen. With the Royal Philharmonic, I go straight through. Go back, do a youth spots. <laughs> young conductors, <laughs> exactly. young yeah, conductors, and... stop. They tell the Royal Philharmonic what to do. <laughs> he says, they played it 78 times more than that conductor's ever picked up a baton. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, of course, that is, in terms of Sir Thomas, that's slightly on purpose overdone. Oh, no question. <laughs> but but uh, in a way, it's very, very... And I think that when it happens that a conductor has the technical tools and the knowledge that he doesn't need to interrupt uh, an orchestra all the time, and he can develop a sense of flow. Yes. If I can teach uh, my students something that goes into that direction, then I will have done my job. Maestro, I want to talk to you about knowledge of music. This is what I got from Bob Bigger. Phrasing. Something flow, turning that melody, understanding where people like this come from. It's not a natural thing for some. I think playing chamber music is very important, accompanying singers. You as a violinist must have played a lot of string quartets and quintets and sextets in your life. So you understand the interplay, no? Using the term of this show. Don't you think that's part of the training that a conductor must have? Always? Oh, no, no. I think it's the part of the training that a musician must have. There we go. A conductor in particular, uh, that is also one of the focal points. Because, I mean, the easiest way for me to explain it just in a very general way is um, if we all would understand uh, making music, conducting, um, as utilizing speech, ah. which, and in a language, no matter what language you speak, there is a certain melody and you will uh, kind of, you're, you're aiming towards certain words without even thinking. And, uh, and that I always, most of the time, I, th I would say 90% of the time, I look for where do does phrasing actually go? Because phrasing goes somewhere. I just mm. have to figure out where it goes. And uh, very often we can butt our heads and discuss um, essentially not only where it goes, but we might have different opinions and then we'll talk about that. That's okay, but at least know how to phrase. At least know what you're saying. And I am, uh, this is not a criticism of, of the students because I have not yet had my own students. I will next year. Uh, but I'm sometimes amazed by the fact that uh, uh, musicians don't really know where does a phrase go, meaning what Beautiful. do I to say? And you, what I want to do is essentially help them. Um, and I have to remember that at all times help them to find their ways. Because, you know, as a teacher, um, with a lot of experience on your shoulders, you are always in danger of telling the student, this is how it's done. Just I tell you, this is how you phrase, etc. And uh, trust me, I am very opinionated. <laughs> I have a very clear idea. 
but I have to, as a teacher, I think you have to help the student, this young musician, to find their way. And okay. Yes. Let's talk. Let's talk about this guy's Fortieth Symphony. That guy. First, that guy. His Fortieth Symphony, first movement. Yup. Okay. Choice of tempo for your students. What if they go too quick, or too slow? <laughs> what are you doing? How do you t teach them how to that E flat to the D? How do you teach them to do it? What would you do? What's the tempo? How do we choose it? That that guy, 40th Symphony First Movement. Yes, let's do that. I mean, I would my my singing, first of all, do not take it too slow. Okay. Not no not a good to to me, not a good idea because I think the expression of uh, the first movement, when it starts, it's a little bit of uneasiness of urgency amongst other things. So this uh, this ta -da -di 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 -da -di -di -da -da. it should not sit because then if it sits the it's very <laughs> no it, it just it doesn't express what I think Mozart wanted and I think that it also I think if you and I don't think that what I have in mind is so insanely uh, fast. But when you don't go slow, um, it helps you to shape the bigger picture. Because um, one thing, and we are kind of touching the topic, is we talk about the phrasing, which is the little sentences. Uh, but let's talk, uh, I don't even say the chap, the poem. Let's talk about the verse, four verses, for something like that. And you have to have a sense of how to shape that. Uh -huh. You have to have a, a structural idea of how to shape the entire thing, etc., etc., etc. I mean, with that guy. <laughs> but I, I am an absolute sucker for, because I remember Beethoven said that, First, uh, I read many times that uh, whenever there was a concert about his music, the first question for him was, how were the tempi? Yeah. And I thought like, okay, there you have it. And I am very, very meticulous in terms of thinking what is the tempo. And of course, the thing with, with whether it's that guy uh, <laughs> behind you. For listeners watching this, Mozart's 40th Symphony in G minor we're talking about. Continue, Maestro. So Mozart's uh, 40th Symphony, first movement. Of course, now there are probably, uh, I don't know about that symphony, there are easily 200 recordings available. Easily. And I would guess around 25 of them are really very good. So, and they are very, very different. I mean, we're talking about at 40. So you will have people um, not, uh, not that I've actually, I've never heard whether he recorded it, but I assume I would know how he does it. Um, my dear colleague, Bruno Weil, who was uh, director of Tafel Music in Canada, mm. I think Canadian, um, who will be, 
quite faster than I even think. Oh, absolutely. And on the other side, you have, uh, I'm sure you recorded it, Otto Klemperer. And that's... There are many Klemperer stories, by the way. This is fascinating. So do I. And the thing is, <laughs> just, yes, I am, I am always in favor. If you want, just listen. Don't be shy. Just don't copy. Because you are not that. Yeah. I remember when I was very young, I, of course, was fascinated with Klemperer and his approach and the, the majesty of his music. Oh, my God. So much of it. Yeah, and then I tried to kind of uh, mimic that, which uh, didn't get me anywhere because I'm not emperor. <laughs> well, you're also not six foot seven, no? <laughs> I'm slightly short. <laughs> I'm slightly shorter, and yeah, yeah. okay, now I'm uh, in a few years I get to that famous age. <laughs> I know when we shrink. I was six one. I'm not six one anymore, but I should not mention. I'm curious about choice of of, of uh, repertoire. Not only uh, what you'll do at school, but what you've done for so many years. One thing I'm noticing as a composer of newly composed music or music I've written throughout my career is that the management seems to have more control over choice of programming with merchandising and marketing and this department and that department and that committee and this and that. And the musicians, especially the conductors, have less say than Eugene Ormandy or Leopold Stokowski had. <laughs> Do you see that changing? I would love to say that the answer is no. Uh, of course, if you mention Ormandy or the likes, well, that is really the past. We have. Uh, that has changed ever since. Um, I like to think, and uh, I would like to give that message also to young conductors and students alike, that we as music directors, not as guest conductors, as music directors owe it to ourselves and uh, in particular the industry, um, especially here in the United States, that we have um, what I call a financial conscience, mm -hmm. music directors, meaning be aware that the amount of uh, money you make by your programming is absolutely crucial for the health of the institution. So if you are going to plan in whatever orchestra, you're the music director of a series of uh, Schoenberg, Berg, Webern, uh, followed by, just to main, name a few, <laughs> are amazing stunning composers, you might have great concerts in front of a fairly empty hall. And your marketing department and your president might not like it. And that's where it comes to a clash. So I have worked my entire career, especially the last, I would say, 25 years, on creating programs that feed the needs of pretty much everybody. Um, meaning you stretch in different directions and you give, uh, you, you are aware that there is a certain amount of your audience that wants to hear the well-ridden war horses, 
There are more horses for a reason, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I love to conduct Dvořák 9 or Beethoven 5 or Tchaikovsky 4. They are, I mean, they are I mean, best works ever written, amongst others. But I also like to take the audience into a di direction where they have never been. And I think over time that you try to create with your audience a trust um, so that the audience knows that even if there is something on the plate that they have never eaten, it's going to be really, really interesting and they are going to take away something from that. And that, in consequence, will be at all times, be, will be accepted. Mm -hmm the management and cherished by the board. I remember specifically uh, when the, um, the crisis, uh, the economic crisis of uh, well, 14 years ago, give or take, mm -hmm. hit. We were, we were in jeopardy in Oregon, as everybody else was, but we were having a hard time. And I got a little bit of pressure from the board in terms of changing my programs. And we settled because Instead of changing the programs, I mixed it up in a certain way mm -hmm. and I provided something to the board, to the uh, people in the office and to the audience, which is called context. Meaning uh. I start, you probably realize I like to talk about music. It's fine. And I, as my wife likes to say, don't give him a microphone. He never stops talking. Or if you give him a microphone, tell him it's three minutes and then shut up. Well, we only have a half an hour, but. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you tell the audience something, mm -hmm. it will relate to the piece in a very different way. No question about it. Yes. And that's what I have been doing. Yes. That's how I. I would say I, I averted the danger of uh, marketing professional residents, etc., taking over a part of my program. Um, so I, I must say that I was very lucky. I've never had a fight, meaning have to. No, we do this because I want. No, I was all very like um, I'm, I'm very team oriented and I always was very understanding. So of course. what I also say, yeah. and I say that to I don't know whether it's musicians in general, but conductor colleagues who are taking over an orchestra, please don't blow through your budget in uh, barely two concerts because what is there to be left? Just be, be financially responsible as a musician and you will do very well. well this is certainly things you can impart to your young students this is part of the life why does certain music last talking now talk to the alive composers you're a conductor of years of experience certain music that's being written now by my colleagues as it were will last a little bit of it will and most of it won't. Why? If I could answer that. No, don't, don't, don't. You know, you know the reasons. Talk about specifics. How do? Why does? Why does the Brahms Symphony grab us, or, or Dvorak Nine? Why do they grab us? While, yeah, I don't know. A Moscow's piece doesn't grab us. <laughs> 
or, you know, Kachbrenner or some other person doesn't grab us, but Chopin does. Why? Why does it happen? I think about this all the time as well, a 71 year old composer. You, you uh, I mean, uh, the, I don't think I can answer that question in a way that is satisfying, but uh, I, as, an, as, a, as a colleague of many, many wonderful composers, I see the problem that composers run into, which is so many things have already been said in music. So composers are bound to find their way that has not been traveled yet. Number two, which is a topic we could uh, probably expand for another 15 minutes, should an art form in general music included reflect the times in which we live? Uh, because for me, the answer is, oh, yeah. And uh, lastly, <laughs> which doesn't reflect what neither Brahms nor Dvorak, amongst others, did, is it's music, it's classical music, what you hear in a concert, actually there for entertainment. What is entertainment anyway? So if you put all of that together, you run into, as a composer, to so many problems. And I am fascinated about the fact that um, pieces survive probably for a reason while others don't. And uh, if I would know which one of the current composers are going to be played in 50 years when I'm already uh, gone, I, I would know things that I actually don't have an answer for. Of course, I believe to some extent that a certain style of music uh, peaked at a certain time. Uh, and that is where we get uh, the best composers that we play over and over. And those composers speak to humanity no matter what, the comprehensiveness of those composers is absolutely stunning. Um, I think, and I don't say that as an explanation, but it's helpful, and we touched on that, if occasionally you give an explanation to people about what they are going to hear or why or something. Just a little hint. With music by Mr. Beethoven or Mr. Dvořák or the Tchaikovsky or Mozart or Bach, you essentially don't need that explanation. It just for itself. Well, you will and that is a problem that, that uh, trust me, I have done, mm, I wouldn't say that much, but I've done quite a number of world premieres. Mm -hmm. And when it, when it comes to world premieres, what I really want to do is, um, <laughs> I want to give help giving birth to something that actually can walk by itself. Uh. Meaning the worst thing that I, uh, that I have, and I have done that, is making the world premiere of a piece and knowing these are two concerts of this piece in one, meaning it's the first and the last. Nobody will ever hear this piece again. And it's, it's so, distressing because you think the composer no matter who it was uh, put so much effort in creating this piece of art and it's just not 
it's not it's not relating to people and if i knew by the way how the perception taste of uh, classical music will change over time mm-hmm. i mean i i i'm probably very mildly old fashioned in the sense of i don't know whether crack as a tool whether quarter tone will get us anywhere intonation i mean overly used as an expression oh yeah oh yes as an expression but no i mean don't write a piece in quarter tones because it, it's well i don't i want to talk about something which is quite interesting you're conducting Mahler nine in uh, oregon coming up in may and this broadcast will probably happen around the time you're conducting it. Mahler 9 was not a popular piece in 1912 when Bruno Walter did it with the Vienna Philharmonic. And then the, the, I mean, other people did it here and there. And then the Hitler time came. And it really wasn't until, I think, Horenstein and Lenny and others took up this music that it became a fact that hopefully you'll have a full house in Oregon for your Mahler 9. Why? Well, probably because there are uh, there is a slew of pieces that people at the time, when uh, they happened, they didn't understand it. Or later came a time when the piece disappeared. Mahler nine, yes, it was not popular, and of course uh, the, the the Vienna Philharmonic was up in arms against the piece because it was so at the time dreadfully complicated. Uh, that uh, they simply didn't, uh, and it also is, it's Mahler, it's long. <laughs> so all these components, but uh, I mean, I, uh, we all know, for example, the fact that this, this <laughs> St. Matthew's Passion by Mr. Bach, which is undoubtedly one of the greatest pieces ever conceived. Yes. And if Mr. Mendelssohn wouldn't have uh, kind of led mm. the charge... 20. 20 years old. Yeah. And said, hey, listen, this mm-hmm. is it. Uh, probably we, we would still know it, but this, that's the thing with classical music. I, I wish I would have an answer and I wish I would see things that I think in 30 years people are going to understand, but... But you've... Uh, all I can do is yeah, immerse yeah. myself mm-hmm. comes to modern scores. Doesn't need to be a world premiere. Modern scores where I immerse myself with everything that I have and I try to make the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, last piece I conducted um, as a world premiere was here at CIM, Keith Fitch, a piece called Ali. And I thought that is that piece does something, and it's just one example. Um, does something that I consider a quality of uh, composers, which is uh, especially when you work with students, you have quite an amount of rehearsal that you don't have with a professional orchestra, Correct. and uh, you go into a lot of detail work. Anyway, 
And the thing that Kiss's piece, piece did for me, and I think for the students as well, is at first it was like, oh my God, this is hard, and this is very, very this, or whatever you thought. And the piece over time grew on all of us. Also, we got better at playing it, but it mm -hmm. grew on us, and at the end it was sheer enjoyment of just making the case for a composer with one of our own. But it's just, I'm utilizing that because it's a vivid example of something that just happened. It happened over time to many, uh, many other pieces that I had the pleasure of conducting that are absolutely contemporary. Yes. Um, you know, I find this fascinating to talk about um, because you pinpointed something. From that person, somehow comes something, that person or any person whose music may last, comes something that will hit a chord, that chord, <laughs> a harmony in the spheres, that will rise up. I must say, in your conducting, it is so alive and so magical, the experiences that, that I have had and look forward to having. So, Carlos Calmar, thank you so much for being on Interplay. This is a wonderful conversation. Real pleasures. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. This is Michael Shapiro for Interplay Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us.